Hi, I'm Susanna Keith, founder of Hello Career Guru, a company committed to helping all women advance professionally, no matter what age, background, race, or geography. Launching soon, Hello Career Guru will offer women one unifying online platform for developing their personalized career game plan, powered by Executive Insights. For our first episode of the Guru Salon, we have the amazing Cheryl Einhorn, who will share highlights from her new book titled Problem Solved. I have known Cheryl for years and am amazed at all of her achievements, whether as an investigative journalist, professor at Columbia University, a business consultant, and finally a TEDx speaker. Cheryl will share her area decision-making framework, which can help you make better decisions personally and professionally with confidence, integrity, and clarity. Welcome, Cheryl. It's so good to be here with you. Thank you, and I'm so excited for your new business and thrilled to be with the audience. So at a time when so much seems uncertain, Cheryl, I thought it would be good to discuss your area method system for complex problem solving for our listeners, what it is, and why do we really need a systematic way to tackle big decisions? Well, that's a really good question. I think we need a way to tackle big decisions in part because we face a lot of them in our lives. And although we all grow up to be decision makers, at the current moment, there's really no formal learning that we have about how to solve them. We don't learn it in our schools and we don't learn it in our homes. But if we could ever truly own the skills to solve complex problems, we would not only be able to get closer to our goals, we'd be able to get closer to our dreams. And so what AREA tries to do is to give you a system that builds on a collaborative backbone and tries to strengthen your relationships even as it helps you control for and counter cognitive bias, assumption, and judgment. And that's because at its heart, Area is a perspective-taking system. So, Cheryl, why perspective-taking? How does that help people with their relationships and their job issues? Well, perspective-taking is this beautiful two-for-one. By walking in the footsteps of the other stakeholders involved in your decisions, you can not only get up close on their incentives and motives, but you can also gain distance on your own assumptions and judgments and therefore have a better opportunity to control for and to confront them. Think of it like the opposite of Google. Right now when we're trying to solve complex problems, we typically enter our questions and our queries into a search engine like Google. And then immediately we're sitting in all perspectives at once, and we tend to listen to the loudest voices, those that come up first, without any sense of their incentives and motives, and without a real sense of how to listen to our own inner voice. And so by separating out our sources of information one at a time, we can get an understanding of what others are thinking and feeling, and also have an opportunity to check and challenge our own inner voice. So you mentioned cognitive biases. Give us some examples of what we'd be looking for to open up our creativity and to think through problems more rationally. Well, a couple of examples of common cognitive biases have to do with things like liking bias. 
the idea that we do tend to give more credence to the opinions of people who we care about or confirmation bias, which is information that fits into a worldview that we already hold, or the relativity bias, which is how things are framed. And therefore, how does that mean that we tend to think about a problem, even if that frame might have no diagnosticity, for example, um, or even something like salience bias, where there is information that seems to be surprising or shocking or so different from other information that we tend to glom onto it and make a decision based on that, whether or not it actually has any greater relevance than any other data that we may have. And so those are a couple popular ways that can really trip up our thinking when we're trying to solve for complex problems. So to this end, Cheryl, explain area in more detail and take us through an example for someone beginning a search now. Absolutely. So AREA is an acronym for the steps of my perspective-taking process. The letters stand for Absolute Relative, Exploration and Exploitation and Analysis. So in AREA A, Absolute, that's information from close-up on the target of our decision. So say that you're just beginning your job search and you want to find something, for instance, in the food industry, your absolute target would be those potential opportunities in the food industry. It could be Procter & Gamble and it could be Pepsi or it could be the food startups that you're looking at. And so you'd be getting information directly from those organizations or companies themselves. How do they talk about their value proposition? What are the products and services that they sell? What's the business model for how they do what they do? And then in the next step, which is relative information, that's information from sources that are somehow connected to your targets, but not from the targets itself. And this is an opportunity to put those targets into their broader ecosystem and to put them into context. So it might be a literature review that helps you understand how do other people think and feel about the targets that you're looking at. How is Pepsi or Procter & Gamble seen by customers? How is it seen and understood by employees? How is it seen and understood by industry experts? How is it seen and understood by academicians who are thinking about what's next in the industry? And so on. And so the next step after that, exploration and exploitation, the ease in area, those are what I call the twin engines of creativity. At this point, you're getting beyond document-based sources to identify the right people and then ask them the right questions and exploration. So it's about interviewing. And this, I think, is really a critical step because here you could be talking to recent graduates, for instance, from your alma mater who might be working at these companies, and you can find out, well, what's actually their experience? You now know how the companies describe themselves from absolute, and from relative, you know how the broader industry thinks about them. But when you actually talk to people and you get beyond the documents, what's their actual experience? For instance, might one company have a manual for the manual, and so it has really set processes that you would need to follow? Does one company really give you just the guide rails, but then allow you to solve the problems that you need to tackle in your daily job on your own? And which of those futures do you imagine 
being more attractive to you? Are you somebody who wants to follow a pathway that others know to achieve a successful outcome? Or do you want to be able to bring some of your own creativity and problem solving to whatever the job is? Which future do you think sounds like something that you would prefer to follow? And then in exploitation here, instead of broadening your research, you're actually deepening your understanding of how you think as a decision maker. And this is a brand new step in decision making. It relies on a couple of creative exercises that I've learned from experts in other fields, such as intelligence analysis or investigative journalism. And here you're really looking at your assumptions against your evidence so that you can really try to control for encounter some of the cognitive biases that I spoke about earlier. And so here you might be taking the different pieces of evidence that you've gathered from absolute relative and exploration and put them against your hypotheses. If you think that you want something creative, how does the evidence stack up? If you think that you're looking at something that has a real process for to follow, how does your evidence stack up? And so this step often has people really recognizing and understanding their information in a way that's different than they initially understood it, and it often drives them back into earlier parts of the process to either get more data or to do a different kind of analysis. And then in the final A for area, that is the analysis step, and here you're putting all the pieces together and you're thinking about failure even before you've made your decision. And again, this is something that is new in complex problem solving, but something that I think can really hold you accountable so that you won't have an evolving hypothesis of why you're doing what you're doing and also help you think about how could the decision go awry even at this late stage. And so here I recommend a pre-mortem where you pretend that the decision has failed, you tell the story of failure, and you have an opportunity to see how it could go wrong and then to set up some safeguards to prevent it from failing in that way and to help you come to conviction on your decision. Cheryl, that is so helpful for anyone beginning a job search, no matter whether they're right out of college or they're mid-career or even senior in their career. So thank you for that. You talk in your book, Problem Solved, about the need for strategic stops, which you call cheetah pauses. How does this technique help us? Well, the cheetah pauses rely on what makes the cheetah such a fearsome hunter, right? The cheetah's hunting ability doesn't come from its ability to accelerate like a race car. It's actually that it decelerates up to nine miles an hour in a single stride. And the reason why that's so much more important than the acceleration is that strategic stop allows you for flexibility, maneuverability, and agility, all the things that we need in a good complex problem-solving system. And traditionally, when we are solving a complex problem, we want to steadily move forward. At the same time, in order to move forward well, we often need to slow down to actually speed up the efficacy of what we're doing. And in that slowdown, in those cheetah pauses that I talk about in the book, I have a cheetah sheet at every point where I tell you to take a cheetah pause. And the cheetah sheets give you tips 
on either questions that you want to ask of your data to do some analysis or gives you suggestions on where you might want to look for good data. And so these strategic stops, these cheetah pauses, are meant to constantly help you to understand what is research, how is it done, where might you look for good sources of information, and give you an opportunity to really chunk your learning so that you're summing up the different parts of your research and basically asking, so what? What does this mean? And therefore, you can understand what might be missing, and that can tell you what you should do next. Cheryl, this is so helpful to anyone. Um, the exploration phase in particular is something that is really useful in job hunting. Give us some examples of what kinds of people are good sources in these instances and why. What kind of questions might we ask? Well, we talked about before the person who might be looking at something in the food industry. And so one type of, of good sources are people who are either current or former employees at those companies, um, which we had touched on. So for instance, nowadays, you might really want to know if you'd be applying for a job that has to be done on location, right? If you're interested in working in product development, do you have to be in a lab? Or are you allowed to telecommute? And different companies may view that differently, and they may have different frequency, for instance, for how often they may want you to come in. And you can't really get that easily by looking at documents. So that is one kind of good question and one kind of good source that you could talk to. Another one might be some kind of a third party that looks at forecasting, like a Gartner group, for instance, that might be able to say to you, hey, you know, this is an industry that really seems to be growing, or this is an industry that is increasingly becoming disintermediated, and it's just not going to be a good growth industry. And this could tell you, um, for instance, how you might think about how often you'd want to be updating and iterating your skills once you are in an area, or which types of companies may really be on the up and up, and which types of companies may be really facing greater challenges in the future. And so that's just a couple of examples about why it's so important to add this interview element and to think about the kinds of questions that are going to get you actionable answers so that you are asking things that are practical and actionable to what you really need to solve to make your decision. And then the other part of area E, exploitation. You talk about making your mistakes before you make them. What does that mean and how important is it? Well, we can never make all of our mistakes before we make them, but these creative exercises can really save us from a lot of thinking problems that we may naturally face by checking our assumptions and challenging the judgments that we're making, we can really tease out where it is that we might be leading ourselves astray. I talked before about things like saliency bias or confirmation bias. And these simple exercises that I've learned from experts in other fields, each one of the exercises shows you a different picture for how you're interpreting your data. We talked before 
about um, an exercise that looks at your evidence against your assumptions. Um, it has a funny title called the Competing Alternative Hypothesis Exercise, even though it actually is a very simple exercise to follow. But other exercises that I mentioned in that chapter are things like a scenario analysis, which will tell you how the different variables impact the way that the decision could bear out. Or a pro-con list, which gives you two different pictures of each set of data by looking at the data from the pro and looking at the data from the con and understanding that each piece of data has an upside and a downside and that it can be interpreted two different ways. And so these exercises really do help catch some thinking mistakes before you've even made your decision. Next, as we're coming to conviction on our decision, you have us think about failure. Talk more about the analysis phase of the process. Well, what I think the analysis phase really does, and this exercise that I talked about before the pre-mortem, is that it holds us accountable as decision makers. You know, every year we audit our finances, but it's odd that we don't really audit our decisions. Right? Don't we want to know why did we make a particular decision? What was the work that was involved in it? And how did we interpret the data at the time? And so this pre-mortem really helps us see what we did, why we think it's going to work, and why we think it's going to go awry. So that next time we make a decision, we can learn from what we've done and we can hold ourselves accountable so we don't have an evolving hypothesis. Oftentimes we do update our thinking and we change why we think we made a decision based on the current circumstances and based on the current environment. But that may not have been what we were initially doing and that may allow us to remain on a course that may not be working out for even longer. Or we may want to recognize where we've ended up just having some good luck and how luck factors in. So that next time, again, that we make a decision, we can learn and build ourselves as decision makers. So overall, the value of the system and its differentiation from other types of decision-making systems is what? Well, first, it recognizes that research is fundamental to decision-making, and yet there are no other systems out there that really explain what research is. They generally say, do research or explore your options, but research is actually an umbrella term for a whole series of tricky steps that need to be thoughtfully and carefully navigated, and area breaks it down and holds your hand as you go. The second is this concept of the strategic stops, the cheetah pauses that we talked about, and knowing when to slow down to speed up the efficacy of your work and what to do during those strategic stops. The third is this idea of perspective taking and making sure to include other stakeholder voices and to check and challenge our own cognitive biases. Fourth is the idea that it acts as a feedback loop so that it helps you have multiple points of reentry to collect new information or new insight. And then finally, this idea that we want to build this audit trail of how we make decisions so that in the future, we can constantly be improving what we're doing and having an opportunity to continually strengthen our relationships 
as we do it so that we're solving our problems holistically, which gives them a better chance to succeed. Success is really the truth right now, Cheryl, with everything that's happening in our world. So beyond your books, you have other decision tools that people can use to learn about their decision-making style or practice how to frame and break down a complex problem. Explain how these work. Well, so I have a series of digital modules that I call the Decisive Decision-Making System. And the first one really helps you think about your problem-solver profile. This is a short quiz that you take that then helps you to self-categorize yourself into one of five decision-making archetypes. And then I share some information about what are the strengths of self-identifying that way, what are some of the potential pitfalls, the key cognitive biases associated with self-defining that way, and then gives you a group of worksheets to help you think through how to bolster those strengths, how to limit those potential pitfalls, and how to work better with other kinds of decision-making archetypes. And then the next decision-making module helps you to really frame and break down the complex problems so that you know what your vision of success is, what would constitute a good outcome for you personally, and then helps you to come up with what I call the critical concepts, the one, two, or three things that you want to deeply and creatively investigate to solve for that vision of success so that you no longer have an open-ended problem-solving process, which could potentially be off-putting or frustrating, but instead you have something focused and targeted on what you know would constitute a good outcome for you personally. And then the third one is called You're Not As Open-Minded As You Think, and it is helping us to really think through assumptions and judgments, learn a little bit more about cognitive biases, and then four different ways to help thwart those cognitive biases and assumption and judgment as you go through the decision-making process. So Cheryl, in closing, what other things would you want our listeners to know and how can they reach you? Well, I think what I would like people to know is that there's two kinds of learning. There's knowledge and there's skill. And what I like about area and about complex problem solving is that it's a skill. I can give you the pathways to gain these skills, and then you can own them, and you can do what you want with them. And what that means is that you have an opportunity, therefore, to know how to frame and break down problems, how to solve them, and hopefully that makes you feel more energized, that you've got agency and efficacy as you move through the world, and a resiliency to take on ever bigger challenges. And so I hope that's what people walk away with. And to reach me, they can reach out to me at my website, which is area method, A-R-E-A method.com. And I'd be happy to learn more about the kinds of complex problems that people are solving and help them with their questions and their challenges. Thank you so much.